0: Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go Beyond the Numbers to find out.
1: Hello, and welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, On behalf of Weaver, I'm James Kent. As part of Weaver's commitment to its ESG services, Elisa Martin and Greg Englert are leading a soup to nuts discussion on ESG. Over the course of this podcast, Elisa and Greg will be covering the latest trends they're seeing in ESG reporting and sharing some regulatory changes that they're hearing about and may be coming to fruition in the near future. They'll also cover some of the gaps they're seeing in what's being reported in some ESG and sustainability reports. And they'll also share some of the leading best practices they're seeing being adopted by leading companies in the energy sector. Elisa Martin is Weaver's National Strategy Leader of Large Markets and Public Entities, and Greg Englert is the Partner of Risk Advisory Services and Weaver's ESG Services Leader. Lots of great information for you on this discussion, so I'm going to hand things over to the experts. Elisa, take it away.
2: Let's get grounded with some basics. We all hear about sustainability reporting, or have for years, and ESG in the marketplace and in the news. So sustainability reporting, if you go out and try to define it, it's really economic, environmental, and social impacts of an organization. Pretty simple. But that itself is very broad. ESG reporting is known by many different names. And sustainability reporting is one of those names and probably the longest positioning for the topic. But so is corporate social responsibility reporting, or purpose-led reporting, or ESG risks and opportunities reporting. All of that has the same substantive content, and that's what we're really here to talk to you about And so, what's interesting is that when you think about sustainability reporting, many of us think about things like green industries or progressive companies with a focus on environmental impact. But its genesis really came much a long time ago and much from a um, a, a perception issue. Sustainability reporting was started back in the 80s when chemical companies and downstream companies like refineries started to come under fire for their increased scrutiny over environmental impact. And as a result, the concept of a sustainability report came into vogue to battle that poor public perception. It stuck. And so today, as we fast forward, the sustainability reports are the, a very common platform for companies to talk about their impacts to the world around them in all different aspects if you keep in mind that the US, in the U.S., there is really no requirement to issue these reports. It's voluntary or elective. Certainly, there's pressure to issue the reports, but there's no current set frequency, no required topics, really nothing that's driving this other than the public interest and stakeholder expectations. So, reporting has evolved It's certainly evolved as we've seen it from the 90s. It's evolved in a very pervasive way in the last year to two years as ESG becomes more and more expected from the investor public. So that evolution defines what companies are doing and it defines what companies are including. And it also defines how frequently a sustainability report needs to be updated We see it most commonly updated annually around the same time as or between the time of the annual report and the proxy statements. Sustainability reports continue to grow in frequency and size and coverage as well. But there's no doubt that the investment community is really pushing this the concept of ethical investing or impact investing is the primary and driver that's accelerating the adoption of sustainability reporting. But it also drives what companies have to do to maintain those commitments that they're publicizing. So it drives the company's policy and practices and by effectively demanding that certain principles are adopted or potentially reducing the investment that those companies may have from the public markets. So effectively, the market is saying to companies, we want to hear what you're doing. We want to see your metrics related to environmental impacts and social consciousness. We want to see those impacts. And if we don't, we might not invest. We might publicly grade your company differently as we move forward. So sustainability reporting is one thing. Today, we're talking about ESG. While sustainability reporting was somewhat of a catch-all, the ESG concept is much more focused and has some framework around it to cover those three big pillars, environmental, social, and governance. Sustainability reporting had evolved and is aligned now to ESG pillars, And still today, companies and entities that were early adopters of sustainability reporting continue to call their reports sustainability reports. But the investor community is looking for that ESG coverage. So let's break it down and talk about what is in each of those three elements. Environmental, well, generally, that's the impacts on environment. But most commonly is things like emissions, water usage, renewable products. And Greg will go into that a little bit more later. Social, think about social terms like the communities for which the, the entity operates, where your organization's primary geographies are, things like your the social impacts that you have on the workforce COVID, that's a big one we've dealt with for the last year. That's one that falls in social. And many of The reporting requirements talk about employee health, employee well-being. It also extends to the benefits that are paid to employees, such as sick leave, but other benefits, such as supported higher education. Promotion of worker health is a large component of social, but so is diversity and inclusion, charitable contributions and connections and support of communities in which each organization operates. That is what resides in that social pillar. Noted that all of those activities are aligned across several different frameworks that Greg will talk about. And the data points to collect and report on social, connective, natured activities as well as employee-related items are pretty easy to obtain if you're already tracking them. So those social connection points, the data, that's something that companies often have on the ready. And companies take advantage of these disclosures to provide a position about their company's connection to their community. It's a way to draw attention to the things they're doing, and in some cases, what they're not doing around their communities and where they have most recently contributed to employee health. We're gonna see a lot more of this given the health circumstances that COVID brought on, but also given the diversity and inclusion topics that are top of mind today. Moving on to governance, governance is really the setting of the tone. It's an opportunity for the key senior decision maker to share a key message, drive forth something around their strategy, but also the tone of their company. And in the time of COVID, We've seen this used as an invaluable opportunity to to demonstrate the commitment to the public, commitment to the employee base, and how the organization has supported the efforts related to public health. But governance is really about governing those stakeholder relationships. And so it includes the, the method in which the organization chooses to communicate their values, their standards, their behaviors that are driven as part of the culture of the organization. Now, this is also a place to disclose things of concern, any kind of critical risks, changes in the the, uh, profile of the organization. And, of course, this is where the company discusses their risk management policies. So you've got environmental, social, and governance components Greg will talk more about the frameworks that support these components, but regardless of the, the frameworks, investors and stakeholders are looking for data and metrics to support what's reported by an organization about their ESG performance. This will help with transparency and confidence in that ESG performance that's reported to the public, but some kind of validation of the data is presumed to be deployed prior to reporting. Many companies have a challenge in identifying this data or consistently compiling it across many divisions or geographies or business segments, especially a diverse multi-discipline organization. Many of those disciplines have to individually gather and submit the data. So a leading practice that we've seen is we've seen it get much more traction, is third-party assurance. It certainly increases the the transparency and the reliance on ESG data, and over time will help with comparability. But when we're trying to garner public confidence, having third-party assurance on at least those key metrics, such as emissions or employee impact, That increased confidence in the disclosure measures, we'll continue to talk about today as one of those trends that Greg mentioned. Greg, you want to talk about the frameworks?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Elisa. That was a great overview, great background. Um, As you've saluted, there are a number of frameworks available when it comes to how uh, companies are structuring their disclosures uh, across all three pillars of ESG, It's important to remind ourselves that none of these are a requirement. There is no single framework that has been adopted that has turned into a requirement. But we are starting to see some alliances form. We're starting to see some sort of emerge uh, more prevalent than others. But um, for the benefit of trying to understand where this may be going, I thought it would be helpful to cover what some of the key frameworks are uh, that are being used today. So the first one is around the Global Reporting Initiative. You'll see this called GRI. It includes standards across environmental, social, economic factors. These are ideally used together to prepare sustainability reports on what uh, the GRI considers material topics. They are widely considered to be uh, one of the broadest and most deeply researched frameworks. And specific to the energy sector, we see GRI use quite a bit Uh, when it comes to frameworks that oil and gas companies and other energy companies are deploying uh, to help identify and report out on some of their disclosures. So very, very common, uh, you'll see that in oil and gas. The next one is SASB, which stands for the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. SASB framework includes more than 70 standards that measure how sustainability issues affect the company, SASB is very focused on financial performance. This includes things around associated accounting metrics, um, technical protocols, activity metrics that are actually specified across multiple industries, and SASB has adapted a framework specific for oil and gas. It's really designed to manage uh, sustainability topics that, in their view, matter the most to their investors. Um, so again, very sort of financial focused in the, uh, disclosures. And I, and I mentioned earlier that we're starting to see some sort of, uh, consolidation or at least indicators of consolidation in these frameworks. Um, it was announced in July of 2020 that GRI and SASB were coming out and announcing a collaboration to basically, uh, work together for, um, asserting themselves basically in a, in a compatible nature. So GRI and SASB saying, look, we're covering certain things, uh, individual unique things, but together we believe that our two, two frameworks can work together to strengthen and broaden ESG reporting. Again, it, it's one of those things that I think was a really strong indicator of what we're probably going to be seeing more and more, particularly around 21 and some of the things that are starting to play out in 21. I think we can expect to see more of that. The next one, and one that has been in the news quite a bit, and we'll talk later on in the presentation about this as well, it's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or the TCFD. So this is a climate-related disclosure framework that's actually chaired by Michael Bloomberg, and the TCFD's disclosure recommendations are structured around four uh, areas that they believe are core elements of how organizations operate. That is governance, strategy, risk management, and then metrics and targets. So these are intended to interlink and inform each other. It's also important to point out that TCFD really is focused on climate-related disclosures. So naturally, there's more of an alignment on uh, particularly the east side of the house when we think about the, four, the uh, three ESG pillars. We're starting to actually see TCFD also build alignment with SASB. We'll talk a little bit later in this presentation about some recent news with uh, actually spearheaded by BlackRock, where they are encouraging companies to adopt the TCFD and SASB frameworks. There are a few more. Just wanted to cover real quick. You might see these out in um, in the news or in ESG reports that you come across. The IRF or the International Reporting Framework. Uh, made up of six sources of capital, manufactured, social and relationship, intellectual and natural. Really, the the ICF urges companies to issue concise integrated reports. And we see see that to a certain extent, but hasn't been quite as, as widely adopted as the other three frameworks that we've spoken about when it comes to the energy space. The CDP, or the Climate Disclosure Project, this focus is almost exclusively on climate reporting, not too different from what we see with the TCFD. At the request of their investors, um, CDP states that they support companies, cities, states, and regions in measuring and managing risks and opportunities related to climate change, water security, and deforestation. The last one I wanted to speak about was the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDG, as you may see it referred to. These are 17 goals that address areas such as poverty, inequality, climate change, environment, and then also peace and justice. Uh, This framework asks companies to endorse and operationally integrate a 10-point policy covering human rights, labor standards, environmental actions, and then also anti-corruption. So again, quite a few frameworks out there, and we'll talk a little bit about Quite honestly, some of the confusion uh, that that causes in terms of companies trying to figure out what makes sense to disclose and then figure out where they should be aligning those disclosures when it comes to these frameworks that have been uh, put out in the market.
2: So, we talked at a high level about ESG and what that means and the common frameworks. And, Greg, you did a great job highlighting some of the different topics that the frameworks cover. And some of those topics are applicable to enterprises and some are not. And so uh, really being selective about what is meaningful for your organization and to your investors and shareholders is part of the exercise. But there is absolutely no adopted ESG-specific guidelines, certainly, that the SEC has mandated. So it's important to recognize that this is an evolving environmental process. And this is an involving investor-led requirement, so to speak. And the growing sentiment around having a universal standard is there, but not all is created equal and not all of the topics apply to each organization. So it must be selective. The SEC certainly has continued to enforce and recommend that environmental, social, and governance topics be considered and be included in disclosures. But the guidelines really only require that ESG issues are included in disclosure, disclosures if they're material, meaning that the information regarding an ESG element or an issue is only required if it would be viewed as significantly impacting or altering the information available to investors quite subjective and the SEC has let it let that be subjective and certainly we've seen some SEC comment letters around certain ESG topics but that's really where it stops at this point so while there's no good way for the SEC to determine applicability That's left in the hands of the issuers. And the issuers have the ability to decide what's best for them to report, how to report in their SEC disclosures, or separately in a sustainability report. As a result, it's hard to compare, even comparable companies, when it comes to their ESG disclosures. Mm -hmm. It's selective. And, it, and there is no standard framework or standard list of required elements. And so investor analysts are having a hard time comparing. But in the, behind the scenes, they're building some expectations of common disclosures that should be there. So within the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, there is a committee. It's the Investment Advisory Committee. That Investment Advisory Committee seeks out to ensure that investors are receiving uniform information about the public investments that they have opportunities to put their funds in. And so it was recently recommended by the Investment Advisory Committee to the SEC that the SEC promote some specific disclosure policies related to ESG topics. And more importantly, that the SEC begin to include ESG topics in their SEC disclosure regimes. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but it's interesting that the committee required or requested five different reasons for making these recommendations, and those reasons included investors requiring reliable material ESG information upon which they can base their voting decisions All the more reason why many of the the sustainability reports come out kind of right before proxy season. Second, they ask that issuers should be directed to include material information to the market relating to ESG issues so that the investors can make investment decisions. Back to that requirement that if it's material, then the registrant should include it in their disclosures, but still up to the registrant. Next, their reason included that requiring ESG disclosure material disclosures somewhat levels the playing field between all of the issuers or the companies in that comparative set. That's a long stretch, but certainly a goal. As Greg mentioned, the frameworks and the subjectivity and choice varies widely across issuers. Next, day, the SEC is to consider how we can ensure that cash flow and flow of capital come to U.S. markets and for U.S. issuers and not be diverted outside of the U.S. because ESG matters are becoming much more important to the investor public. Now, this one is of top concern to the SEC. Further, they asked that the SEC take the lead in disclosures and material requirements for ESG reporting. Now, that advisory committee issued a request to the SEC that will be adjudicated and over a period will certainly come down through their regulatory guidelines. But you can tell that the SEC is definitely taking this to heart, and given that ESG reporting is being weighted and the weight that it's being placed on from investors, that is, the SEC is focusing more and more, is no surprise to anyone. You know, the investors and, and regulators will start putting attention on ESG reporting, which heightens that risk profile of those disclosures. It almost pulls back and makes companies really look at the materiality and potentially separate the sustainability reporting that's elective and available in their materials outside of SEC, just at SEC filings, and it, it will somewhat force some of that information to go to that reporting and not be in the SEC filings. So this concept of a uniform standard is definitely there, and the SEC is certainly concerned about making sure that the investor public has ESG-related information. But how that gets incorporated in SEC disclosures is still to be determined. And the best intention is to have materially accurate disclosures. That's really what we're working for. And with no unified, unified standard and no benchmark, it's kind of like the risk factors that just got streamlined. We may end up with a lot or very little, in our SEC filings. That's why the sustainability reporting and the ESG reporting that's voluntary that Greg will talk about becomes more and more important on a per company basis and is being evaluated separately by the investor public. So now that this committee's report is certainly of um, a very big interest and the ESG factors will continue to have an impact beyond just sustainable reporting, and beyond all um, energy companies that are registrants. The ESG, S- <laughs> ESG-related perception of a company is becoming more and more part of that company's profile and will begin to have a direct impact on stock price and the, the entity's ability to access capital with or without ESG investment mandates or reporting. Now, of interest, of course, President Biden had announced that Allison Heron-Lee will serve as the acting SEC chair. That may also change where the SEC adjudicates on this issue. She's been very, very public about her desire to change ESG reporting and add some requirements. Last September, she published a brief in the New York Times that stated, quote, both investors And the broader public need clear information about how businesses are contributing to greenhouse gas emissions and how they are managing or not managing climate risk internally. Realistically, this can only happen, quote, through mandatory public disclosure. So she's clued in on two very important environmental and climate-related disclosures, but it's certainly the trend. That this is important to her and will come through her administration. It's also been very clear that that she and others are concerned about social issues, which is part of that S part of environmental. So while she talked about greenhouse gas and climate change, in a separate note she talked about the, flat, the fact that we should reflect on how the SEC can more systematically consider. Gender, racial, and other representation disparities in public in policy making. So these are important factors, and we will see what happens as she takes office. But going forward, now that we know the SGA reporting is coming, it's important to remember that the SEC's role is really only about regulate about regulating the reporting and disclosure of information in public filings. So regardless of her opinions, regardless of the views that are coming from the investor public, the SEC will stay in line with its known requirements. They will support transparency and disclosure, but they will focus on disclosure requirements. The SEC cannot tell companies to reduce their carbon emissions. That would be for Congress to make requirements. And by the way, that's in work. Potential targets are being talked about today as we speak. So the SEC can provide disclosure standards. They can drive transparency. And more importantly, they can try to drive comparability. But issuers like yourself have to really evaluate what risk becomes involved in and what gets disclosed as well, as well and where that should be disclosed. Now, if we look north to our neighbor. Canada is also pushing for stronger ESG reporting requirements, and they're following suit. That push is coming from the investing public as well and the prime minister. So like the U.S., there's no currently no standard um, or standardized requirement for Canadian frameworks being reported. It's very discretionary, just like it is here. Now, in November, November 25th, there was a consortium of eight leading CEOs of Canadian pension plan investment managers. Those CEOs control $1.6 trillion of assets under management, and they joined forces calling for companies and investors to provide, quote, consistent and complete ESG information in order to, quote, strengthen investment decision making and better assess and manage their collective ESG risk exposures. They pointed to no framework. They pointed to no specific elements, unlike our chair of the SEC. But these eight CEOs did state that they believe companies demonstrating ESG aptitude and astute practices and disclosures will outperform in the long run. So it will drive. Their investment practices and they just as well said that going forward they will allocate capital to investments best placed to deliver long-term sustainability. So they are telling the public it's becoming important. Just also in, in November specific to Canada, ISS who we all know as Institutional Shareholder Services, the largest proxy advisory firm, announced that four Canadian firms its proxy voting guidelines would begin to include that shareholder consideration. So starting February 1st, for for shareholder meetings going forward, the ISS added one of their risk oversight factors to be, quote, demonstrably poor risk oversight of environmental and social issues and climate change, calling separately about climate change. So this will be one of those risk factors that can be identified during the proxy voting. So ISS also said that they would recommend voting against any kind of individual directors or committees under the extraordinary circumstances that accompanies failure to support governance, stewardship, risk oversight, and responsibilities over these matters. So now ISS is jumping on board In Canada as well. We have not seen that here in the U.S., but it could be coming. This is causing many many Canadian public companies to take notice. And certainly, those public companies previously may have been slow at disclosing environmental, social, and governance topics, but that is about to materially change and could materially change for companies who absolutely know that they have long-term sustainability. These notable exceptions in Canada, just to the north of us, are driving how directors and managers oversee material ESG factors and how a company may have to incorporate those factors into their operations and therefore also their disclosures. We can move now to talk about Europe. Europe has long taken the lead role on sustainability and ESG reporting. We've watched it from afar. There's a growing sentiment, however, for the SEC to work in concert with the regulators in Europe and other regions to drive comparability and utilization of a global framework to aid in investment decisions across all global markets. You know, the non-U.S. regulators have been much more quick to integrate ESG into their legal reporting requirements and disclosure regimes. The European Union and its member states have been particularly active in this area for many years. And the disclosures that you see have in the U.S. have largely been driven by global companies at first. Much discussed the European active participation. Recently, the EU implemented a regulation, that regulation on sustainability, sustainability, related disclosures, sorry about that, um, will take effect March 10. So that sustainability related regulated disclosures is aiming towards transparency. It's aiming to have integration of environmental, social, and governance matters in investment decisions. And those related disclosures are coming now, this month. The disclosure regulation forms part of a package that that legislative initiatives that were designed to promote the engagement of financial service providers in building the sustainable economy needed across all of the EU. And that sustainable economy is very much supported by the investor public. Moving on through a very large enterprise, the UK, they have also implemented, of course, this same disclosure requirement. And they say that the rule will apply to most of the nation's economy. It's a pretty broad statement. They include listed companies, banks, large private businesses, insurers, asset managers, and regulated pension funds, any enterprise that has a public interest. The disclosure regulation, this EU sustainability disclosure regulation goes into effect immediately. And the UK was also the first country to require climate change disclosures. Now, the UK pointed directly to the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that Greg talked about earlier, as the organization to follow for the framework. The TCFD, FD says that companies should disclose their financial, should disclose climate change in their financial reports. They should disclose how climate change increases revenue, reduces sales, impacts the employee base. So there are an increase in companies taking hold and starting to add climate change and the effects of climate change to their disclosures. A matter of fact, at least according to the TCFD, There were 1,500 organizations that support those recommendations, and there's been more than an 85% increase over the last year in the inclusion of climate change disclosures tied back to the TCFD's framework. So that's a large percentage of the market capitalization, over $10 billion. Certainly shows for a sharp trend towards adopting climate change disclosure, as well as other frameworks outside of the U.S. and for the alignment globally, whether it's to Canada or to Europe.
0: With the time remaining, we're going to cover some common gaps between ESG reporting and what the investment community is telling us. And there was a recent event that happened um, on an annual basis. Larry Fink, who is the BlackRock CEO, BlackRock, by the way, is the world's largest asset manager. He released his letter earlier this year and came out very strongly. Fink went on to say that we're greatly encouraged by the progress we have seen over the past year, a 363% increase in SASB disclosures. And again, growing on the 1,500 number that Alisa mentioned on TCFD adoption, uh, Fink says there are 1,700 organizations expressing support. So we're seeing tremendous growth. And that's what I was saying earlier, where we're starting to see these alignments take shape because I I feel like those in the investment community kind of know that something's coming in terms of reporting requirements. And we're starting to see these frameworks get some huge, big endorsements in the community, including from folks like Larry Fink. Uh, His letter went on to say that um, A, it endorsed the TCFD kind of becoming the global standard for helping investors understand the most material risks. And in that letter, he talks about making sure that capital management, long-term strategy, purpose, and climate change are at the forefront. He goes on to say that he expects most companies will issue some form of reporting in the next three to four years. But again, double down on the comments that he feels a single standard for global reporting is necessary. He also went on to say that, um, and, and I thought this was really interesting, market, markets are already repricing companies based on their carbon footprints. So Larry Fink said, and he gave this statistic, that shares of publicly traded renewable energy companies are trading at price-to-earnings multiples of 26 to 27, while legacy hydrocarbon companies are trading under 10 PE. He also went on to caution that we, the investment community has to look at this both in terms of public and try to figure out uh, the private piece. Fink went on to say that he was worried that companies will divest their polluting uh, traditional non-ESG performing uh, assets to private companies who uh, private companies may not be subject to the same public reporting requirements as public companies. So uh, think really sort of taking this beyond just a public company issue. Really saying that these changes, in his opinion, need to be driven at the uh, at really at the government and uh, nation level. And again, kind of closed it out with what we've been talking about here. We strongly support moving to a single global standard, uh, and we see that as the only durable way to get uh, basically a change in this area. So we, in a nutshell, we've got a lot of political factors at play. There's a lot of momentum with very influential investors and asset managers really kind of being very blatant, if you will, about what their expectations are around ESG reporting. And I think, you know, as soon as there's a requirement for ESG reporting, you know, companies are going to have to get ready for how you go about uh, gathering this information, gathering uh, information around things such as greenhouse gas emissions and some other things that we'll talk about later in this presentation. Also, just worth mentioning uh, a few other ESG influencers. I I spoke earlier about Michael Bloomberg. Uh, I don't think you can underestimate what the TCFD has done in terms of trying to be a very vocal advocate of, in their view, climate change considerations that uh, greatly impact the business sector. I think also, too, there's a lot of global movement that is placing additional pressure on the United States. In Michael Bloomberg's most recent uh, TCFD status report, you know he points to places like Chile, uh, of course, the European Union, Hong Kong, New Zealand. UK, Singapore, all these places announcing new policies, new partnerships, other things that are in the way to uh, basically um, regulate or require climate-related financial disclosures. So we're starting to see that sort of global landscape uh, really take shape and apply more pressure from the investment community on the United States. Um, I did see this week too, there was a new report that came out from Morgan Stanley that basically stated that funds that were screening for ESG factors outperformed traditional funds by more than 4% in 2020. So again, we're starting to see investment community really play a part here. And we're also starting to see that these funds where ESG is a focus, thanks to a number of factors, but the data does suggest that they are outperforming the more traditional funds. So definitely something to keep in mind. Ratings agencies. So you may hear companies such as Analytics or S&P Global or Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, these ratings agencies are basically going through an evaluation process to look at what information companies are disclosing as part of their sustainability and ESG reports, and they're basically applying benchmark criteria and scores uh, against those companies and effectively publicly grading and releasing those scores to investors to help aid in ESG-related investment decisions. Similar to the ESG frameworks, we're starting to see um, some inconsistencies in methodologies of how these scores are applied. But nonetheless, um, these scores are out there, and uh, investors and, and institutional investors are heavily relying on these scores for some of their data to help aid decisions, investment decisions. So you should expect to see more and more pressure being applied by virtue of these ratings agencies and their ESG scores. When it comes to institutional investor expectations, you know we're seeing everything from investment policies for mitigating ESG risks. We're seeing very clear statements coming out on expectations of companies. We're seeing you know, ESG credentials in demand by pension funds Really, when you look across the leading asset owners and institutional investors, they are being, uh, I guess I would describe it, very emphatic about emphasizing the importance of ESG to their investment decisions, to their investment mix. And I think that's only going to grow. And I think that will become an even bigger factor as we start to see more standardized ESG reporting and more transparency on some of these key metrics. So again, that's sort of one side where you've got the investment community really being vocal and, and really kind of uh, uh, putting it all out there in terms of how they're making decisions. And then you've got companies, right? There is sometimes a gap. There is sometimes a divide. And it's, it's not as if ESG has been the only issue that has ever divided in the investment community and companies. But you know, on the investment side, it's clear. We talked about this. There's a, There's a craving for data. Uh, We want hard data to understand where companies are performing in terms of ESG. Um, They love standardized reporting. So much like what we get with other SEC filings, there's this very strong interest in having standardized data to help make it easy to compare companies. And then, again, ESG factors, super important when it comes to ultimately making those investment decisions. So where are companies at in all of this? So most have adopted some form of sustainability reporting, most, right? Not everyone. And we could see that from the poll results. But nevertheless, even if you're currently issuing sustainability reports, there's a lot of ambiguity out there and confusion on what we should be reporting. Even if you adopt a framework such as GRI, which has some great specific uh, disclosure recommendations throughout the framework, there's no requirement to actually disclose across all of those different um benchmarks or information uh, buckets, if you will, categories. So we're seeing companies having to sort of look at what their peers are doing, look at the investor sentiment, trying to figure out, okay, are we making ourselves too vulnerable or too open book about potential things that we're doing as a company by reporting on this if none of our peers are reporting on it? You know, ultimately, they want to drive value. They want to drive performance. They want to take credit for all of the things that they're doing around ESG And and honestly, all the gaps and what their goals and targets are. But this sort of uh, inconsistent application of the frameworks, it's very frustrating to the investment community, but it's also frustrating to companies. So let's talk real quick about how companies are responding. So from a limited response perspective, again, basic sustainability reporting, basic corporate responsibility. Maybe you don't have much data in that report. Um, Maybe you're not addressing all the ESG pillars or you haven't uh, adopted an ESG reporting framework. It's good for tone. It's good to remind people about some of the great things that you're doing as a company, but it can really be problematic when it comes to meeting uh, investor expectations. So then we see partially responsive, and this is where data starts to come into play. We get more information provided on your ESG programs. We start to see data, tangible data, supportable data uh, that comes in and it's providing a snapshot of how you're actually performing in some of the key areas and key disclosures. Typically it's covering all pillars, you know, we're we're talking about our people, we're talking about workforce. And while you may have some internal process to feel good about the data that you're reporting, this partially responsive approach, I want to point out, does not include that independent assurance that's ultimately going to give your investors and the market And your stakeholders, uh, the most comfort, the most bang for the buck. And that's where we move into more responsive. So this is where we really see robust ESG reporting. We've got the framework. We've got maybe some supporting uh, spreadsheets that, that have mapped out how we're covering the different elements of the framework. We get assurance. So all of a sudden, we have an assurance letter that we can tuck into the back of our ESG report or include on our sustainability page that says, hey, we hired someone to come in and look at how we're reporting on these key metrics. And they're giving this assurance letter to to drive additional uh, confidence and additional transparency, quite frankly, on what we view as the key data metrics. Again, I mentioned a spreadsheet, right? Something to support how we've mapped and selected which elements of these frameworks we're reporting on. So these are the most meaningful things that we're seeing in terms of how companies are actually taking their their ESG reports to the next level. And we're going to talk real quick about some other key takeaways. How are oil and gas companies re- responding? So wide adoption of ESG reporting, we're seeing we're seeing a wide adoption of at minimum sustainability reporting. I remember seeing a survey earlier this summer I think S&P 500 of the the S&P 500, out of 10 companies or 90% were issuing a sustainability report. So we really are seeing wide adoption of this. And I believe that number will continue to grow, especially as our reporting um, alliances get better. A greater appreciation of ESG risk and opportunity factors. So again, sustainability reporting, it's evolving. It's aligning with these ESG factors. It's starting to include metrics. And companies are getting more comfortable with that being vulnerable. They're starting to, these, these ESG uh, wins and losses, if you will, are starting to lead to more transparent conversations and more honesty about where the company may need to improve. So we're seeing it as really a, as, a, as more of an opportunity to uh, be honest with where the company needs to go and invest. Bringing ESG to the forefront as a strategy Not only to improve maybe the communities where you're operating, but also think about it as a way to understand what are the goals that matter most and how do we improve our company to be good stewards of business? So we're seeing it at the strategic front. I mentioned this earlier, obtaining assurance over those ESG metrics. It's an easy way. It's not that expensive. You can bring a lot of uh, distinction, further confidence into your numbers and your metrics. Uh, Much the way that independent auditors provide assurance over financials, I think ESG metrics will follow suit. And as we start to see this be more regulated, obviously assurance is going to be a big part of, of these reports. And then lastly, using ESG to improve your policies and practices. When you think about social and governance and environmental, all these pillars have a direct impact on how the company operates day to day. So using these ESG wins and losses as a way to improve your your policies and your practices is a big opportunity. Looking at the crystal ball, right? These aren't exactly the most bold predictions after what we talked about, but we know it's only a matter of time before ESG reporting becomes a requirement. ESG disclosures and underlying data are gonna be super important um, as, as the companies take on further ESG initiatives, using those as opportunities. And again, I don't think if you're a private company five years down the road, um, you're going to be not subject to this. Key takeaways and key questions. So just just some basics. Do we have a documented corporate social responsibility report? Um, Is our ESG strategy aligned with our operational strategy? Have we identified and defined the key metrics that we really care about and what the investment community cares about? How is our board engaging on ESG? Uh, Are they asking the right questions? And then does our sustainability report uh, leverage one of the common frameworks? And if not, which one really makes sense for us as a company and what we're trying to get out of these reports? So key takeaways, the time to act is now, even if it's just the beginning of your journey. It sounds like for a lot of you guys out there, that that could be the case. These disclosure requirements are going to sneak up on everyone. Uh, So now's the time to start getting uh, prepared. If your uh, board hasn't asked about ESG efforts, I'm willing to bet that they will. So make sure you're part of the strategic planning process, and then using ESG as a catalyst for changing your organization. This is a great way to really kind of look yourself in the mirror and figure out where we need to invest going forward.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this informative discussion on ESG. As a reminder, if you are looking for more great content like this, you can find other great topics on our podcast, Weaver Beyond the Numbers. Simply hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast content and stay up to date on the latest information from Weaver. On behalf of Elisa Martin, Greg Englert, and Weaver, this is James Kent. Have a great day and let's talk again soon.